The following podcast contains explicit materials. Hello, it's the Saturday show of The Gist. Did I mention it's The Gist? You know that because you clicked on it on your portable audio player. I think a lot of times on the Saturday show, we do something fun and frivolous. I haven't done the data analysis. That's just my intuition. Today, after a week of, I'm not going to say processing, but the initial shock of the horror in Texas maybe has subsided a little bit. I did want to concentrate on issues of shootings and gun violence in America. We have a segment from this week's show and a segment, an interview from past shows. So what you're going to hear first is my talking with Lucy McBath. Lucy McBath just won her primary, a contested primary. She's a member of Congress and has been for the last couple of terms. But back in 2015, she came on the gist as a mother and the subject of an HBO documentary because her son, Jordan Davis, was murdered in Florida. And she and her ex-husband, Jordan's father, participated in this documentary. And that led to her becoming an activist, which led to her seeking office, which led to her winning her nomination as a Democrat in her district. That's interview one. Number two will be my, well, it normally would be a spiel, but we actually did it at the top of the show, recapping the arguments for a ban on the AR-15. I never said it was going to be easy to enact that ban. I laid out the reasons why I do think such a ban, either on newly created weapons or on existing weapons, trying to attempt buybacks or other measures to convince owners to give up their weapons, which I think that would be the way to go. I just laid out the reasons why the AR-15 are so correlative with mass murders. So our politicians can do with that what they will, and what they will do reflects a lack of will, which is to say they won't do anything. So sorry not to perk you up on a Saturday, although in a way this first interview you're going to hear is kind of inspirational to see what Lucy and Jordan Davis's dad did after that horrible shooting. Three years ago, actually, it was almost three years ago to the day. It was November 23rd, 2012 a kid, a 17-year-old named Jordan Davis, was killed. He was murdered. But the weird thing about this murder, the horrible and tragic thing, was it took place in Florida. And Florida is something called the Stand Your Ground Law, which looked at one way is self-defense and looked at another way is a pretty decent excuse for anyone to get away with murder. Well, this is the story of Jordan Davis, who was killed by Michael Dunn, Michael Dunn stood trial twice for that shooting. There is an HBO documentary about this. It is uh, emotional and affecting and really well made, and you get to know all the characters, and I think it's sensitive to everyone involved. The name of this documentary is Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. And Jordan Davis's parents, Lucy McBeth, Ron Davis, are here with me now, and they are in the documentary, and they have been activists. They've been turned into activists since this event, and I want to thank you both very much for coming in. Thank Thanks you for having, having us. Thank you. So compounding this tragedy, you know, the first thing I read in the press notes is is Jordan Davis, an unarmed 17-year-old. I was like, I'm saying to myself, 
you have to say that, right? You have to right. get that fact out. But he's so much more than that, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to refer to my sons as, you know, an unarmed, however right. old they are at the time. So just tell me about your son a little bit. Uh, he was a happy-go-lucky kid. He uh 17 years old, silly, <laughs> you know. Uh, he liked to try to play basketball. He wasn't very good at it, <laughs> but he was good at baseball. He was good at uh, swimming and uh but, you know, he was kind of a leader among his friends. You know, they would always ask Jordan, what are you going to do today? And he would go. And that particular day was Black Friday 2012, and they decided to go to the mall, you know. And so, uh, but Jordan, he is uh, very spiritual. You know, he cared about people, cared, actually cared about World War II because my parents both were in World War II. My mother was a nurse in World War II, and my father drove a fuel truck to the front in, in Germany in World War II. So very interested in history, very interested in actually race relations because his, his friends were of all races, and that's how we grew up. You know, I was born in New York. I was born in uh, Harlem, grew up in Queens, New York. So, yeah. uh, so he understood a lot about what life was at an early age. And he was getting set to take the SATs, go to college, that sort of thing? Right. Or the military. Or the military. He'd kind of been moving more towards the military. Um, hmm. My oldest nephew is in the Marines. Yeah. And he, because he started to say, you know, Mom, I know you want me to go to college, but I'm, I'm not so sure I'm really cut out for college. Mm-hmm. I'm think, really thinking seriously about the military. And, you know, of course, for Ron and I, we're like, whatever you want to do, that that's fine. Just do and be the best at it that you can be. So. And his friends that he was hanging out with that day, those were his main friends. They were doing what they usually but do. But two of the guys was yeah. main. Uh, Leland Brunson was his best friend. He mm-hmm. used to come over to the house and have sleepovers. So that was his best friend. And I knew Tevin, but Tommy, actually, I didn't know Tommy, and Jordan barely knew Tommy, which he's an older kid, mm-hmm. and he was the driver. So these were just good kids listening yeah. to some music in their car one day. Absolutely. Yeah. And this guy, Michael Dunn, shoots him, kills him. How'd you first hear the news? Leland, Jordan's best friend, who was sitting next to him in the car, called his mother, called his own mother, uh, Tanya, and said, you know, Mom, Jordan got shot. He didn't know the outcome at the time. And all of Jordan's friends that were going to remain Jordan's friends, I told him I need to have the phone number of their parents. You know, I would call their parents. He would get embarrassed. But I said, you know what? Parents need to have phone numbers of friends if you're going to have, you know, sleepovers and stuff like that. He would go over to his house and sleep over. So I, she had my number. I had her number. And so she called me. I was working part-time. And she uh, said, you know, Mr. Davis, I have to tell you this like this. Jordan got shot. And I don't know whether he's alive or dead, but he got shot. And she said, don't come to the scene, which is at the gas station. Come straight to the hospital, to, to Shan Memorial. So I hopped in the car and went straight, you know, and I'm driving and I'm crying and I'm just hoping and praying that I don't hit anybody on the way because you're not even paying attention. I think your mind just takes you to where the hospital is. And it took me over an hour to find out whether Jordan was there or not because the hospital has these HIPAA laws where if the person doesn't have any ID, they're not going to tell you whether that was the person that was there. Uh-huh. And Jordan's wallet had fell at the scene. And so uh, finally I had a picture on my phone and I showed it to uh, one of the nurses. I said, is this young man, do you have him in your care? And so she got a policeman, they took me to the back, and they said, yes, we do have your son, and we'll bring the doctor out. So the doctor came out. When he came out, he came out with two other policemen and also came out um, and said that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Davis, we were not able to resuscitate your son. And when I heard that, you know, he probably said about 10 or 12 other things, but I just didn't hear anything besides that, you know, and I just started screaming and crying and you know, the policeman, he's a big six foot five, 260 pound policeman. I mean, whatever came out of my body must have been 
in such an animalistic way, I guess, it just he broke into tears and walked in the bathroom and got tissues, and he was crying too, yeah. you know. And so, uh, you know, I just asked to see my son, and they had a sheet pulled up to his neck, and uh, he had a little blood on his nose. And uh, I remember his eye was a little bit open at the bottom. I'll never forget that. And they said, well, you can't touch the body. It's an ongoing investigation. I said, I'm touching my son. And I hugged my son and started talking to him. And I just told him that, you know, me and your mother had you for 17 years, and now God's going to take care of you the rest of the way. And I'll never forget that feeling. I didn't want to let him go, you know. And then finally I let him go, and uh, I don't know how I got home that evening. So did they explain to you off the bat, well, this is obviously a murder investigation. How did they frame what the legal proceedings would be from that point forward? Well, they said that the guy, the person that shot at the kids had fleed the scene. Okay. Okay. So that tells you something. That tells me something. Yeah. Never dialed 911. We didn't get any 911 calls, only from the boys that, you know, that this happened and also from the gas station attendants called 911. So they said, we're looking for the shooter. And apparently there was a woman that got in the car with the shooter, you know, so they they knew that, who who they were looking for. And what happened, I found out about an hour later, one of the guys that was on the other side of the car, he uh, he was a homeless guy with his girlfriend. They were living out of their car. And so when the red SUV back to flee Michael Dunn, he was faced with Michael Dunn. So he saw straight on Michael Dunn Mm -hmm. shooting at the cars. And so when he saw that, he took down the license plate number. Without this brave young man, Sean Atkins. This homeless guy. Homeless guy. Yeah. You know, actually, he didn't want to turn in the license number because he knew he would be involved in the case because he was on parole. You know, he had stolen some items from his grandmother. And he said with this, and he was out late at night, he would be rearrested. But his girlfriend slapped him in the face and said, you have to do the right thing. Yeah. And so he came in and wrote on a paper bag the license number. He memorized it. Right. And when he wrote that, as soon as Michael Dunn got back home, they arrested him. And it was accurate. He remembered it was accurate. Yeah. Michael Dunn had stopped at a hotel overnight, had pizza, had a rum and coke. Yeah. And walked his dog after shooting and killing Jordan. By the way, a lot of women in this story do the right thing, wind up doing the right thing. So Mm -hmm. how do you find you're living 100 miles away, a couple hundred miles away in Atlanta? Uh, Well, I was in Chicago at the time visiting family and. You know, we'd had Thanksgiving dinner, Thanksgiving Day, and I talked to Jordan, and he was in such a tremendously just joyful mood, just thanking, thanking me, Mom, you know, you've been the best mom I ever could have had, and I know I haven't told you a whole lot lately that I love you, but I just want you to know I love you, and, you know, at the end of the call, he's like, I love you, Mom, happy Thanksgiving, peace out. Yeah. And then... uh you know, the next day, I remember I just happened to be coming upstairs in my cousin's home. I went up to the bedroom, but when I did on the dresser there was Ron's face on the screen, which means I was getting the call from Ron. And I picked up the phone and I said, hey, Ron, how are you doing? Happy Thanksgiving, you know. And he's like, well, where are you? And I said, I'm I'm in Chicago at Terry and Earl's house. And he says, well, but where are you? And I said, well, I'm in the bedroom. Why? He said, where's Earl? And I said, well, he's downstairs with Terry. Why? He says, I need you to go get Earl. And I said, what for? Why do I need to go get Earl? He said, I just need you to go get Earl. Earl's your husband? No, Earl is my cousin. Oh, Earl's your uh-huh, cousin. My okay. cousin. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I said, after he said that to me, I said, no, I'm not going to go get Earl. Where's Jordan? Yeah, you know. So I need to Yeah, at, yeah at I, that, know, I know what you were doing. At yeah. that point. And so then um, Ron said, he said, you know, Jordan's in the hospital. And I said, 
he's in, and I just, you know, lost it. He's in the hospital. And I said, what's wrong with Jordan? And he said, Jordan's been shot. Mm. And I said, you know, is he okay? What's wrong with Jordan? And Ron wouldn't say to me, you know, Jordan's dead. He said, you know, I just need you to get on the first plane and come down here. And that, for me, I knew that Jordan was gone. And I just started wailing, screaming. I mean, just dropped the phone and completely fell apart. And, you know, everything that you worry about your child, you worry about them coming in past curfew. You worry about them being hurt, you know, in a car accident. You worry about them, you know, just being hurt in a fight or or anything of that nature. Every fear that you have about protecting your child and making sure they're okay, I felt every one of those fears at that moment. Absolutely every one of those fears because I felt like, oh, my gosh, it, it just it didn't matter. I didn't do it well enough. Well, obviously, it wasn't anything that you did, as you know. I'm, I know. hope you've come to accept that. But yeah. I'm interested now in they caught this guy done, the help of the uh, license plate. At some point, he concocts a defense. I'm using that word concocts a defense. Right. Was law enforcement or the prosecutor at any, did they tell you and explain to you what the stand your ground law was and how this defense was something that they actually seriously might have to contend with other than some sort of, you know, Hail Mary that could never work? Yes, Officer Oliver came over, him and his partner, and uh, they sat on the couch with me and they, you know, me and my wife and said that, um, He's going to come out with this story that he felt threatened. He said they all use the same story, use the same five words, I feel, I fear for my life. Yeah. He said they all use the same words. They get a defense lawyer, yeah. and he says this is what you have to say. Right. Yeah. This is what you have to say. And he said when they take concealed weapon classes, they tell you in the class to say that. So he said this guy is saying the same thing. He said, but we're going to extradite him back from Satellite Beach, Florida, which is like two and a half hours away, mm-hmm. and get him back up here to Duval County. So this is going to be tried here in Duval County. We're not going to let this guy get away with coming into our town and shooting and killing a citizen of our town. And so he told me right away that that was going to be the defense. And the the unbelievable thing about Michael Dunn is that he didn't even, because it happened so quick that he was caught, mm-hmm. he didn't have a chance to, to hide the gun. He didn't have a chance to do anything. And he didn't even have a chance to concoct a story, really, because his first story to the policeman was that, well, I was going to turn myself into a friend of mine that was in law enforcement. Well, this other guy, he worked for the Department of Agriculture in Washington, you know. Yeah. That was his neighbor. And he even said, I called that guy. He but said, in truth, right. the he guy did. randomly right. called Don. Right. right. Yeah. And the guy exactly. came to us, actually, me and Lucy, after, you know, he testified in the second trial and said, this guy is a, a scum. Yeah. He said, we wasn't friends. He was my neighbor, but we were never friends. He said, this guy was scum and everybody knew it. Now, I want to talk about the two trials. Mm-hmm. What Were the prosecutors, were the police, do you feel they always had your back and they always, always. wanted to always the they wanted to get these guys? From the very, very beginning, they always I think in the did. first trial that the prosecutor was pig-headed a little bit because mm-hmm. the prosecutor, me and Lucy, we told them, you know, you, you have to really prove first-degree murder as far as premeditation. And to a layperson, premeditation is you going home and get a gun and come back, or you go to your car and come yeah. back. That's yeah. premeditation it, to it, us. Premeditation means the amount of time you think about it has to be substantial. But right. I guess in the law, it doesn't. It does, not, but the jury right. is might not, not the, know the that. jury yeah. is not yeah. lawyers. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. think pretty much in the first trial, I honestly think that our attorneys believe that they had enough to convict. Yeah. Right. 
yeah. you know, even Michael Dunn, that. even yeah. without that, and which was definitely not the case. But they knew about the Trayvon Martin case, right? They, they but they tried, they tried the it. Trayvon Martin same, case. Same they were problem. the same attorneys, the same state's attorneys. So, so they lost that case, too. Mm-hmm. They lost that case, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, And I think that was also fuel for the fire for them to make sure that they worked even harder yeah. for us because it was a matter of, I, I think, you know, at that point, people were beginning to lose faith in them and their credibility as mm-hmm. the state's attorneys. And so, but another thing, too, though, is that there was far more information in this, you know, sub- substantiated in our case. There were witnesses, right. and they right. absolutely knew that these were good boys. They absolutely right. knew Jordan was a good kid. Right. He gets off on the first trial? Except for attempted murder. murder. He had three counts of attempted murder, which is going to give him 60 years, and he's 47 years old. So it's like a life sentence anyway. And people were questioning me and Lucy, well, if he's going to be in there for life anyway, yeah. why are you going to a second trial? Because right. we want the state of Florida to say that he was not right killing our son. Right. And, you know, no amount of money that the state has to put up to prove that, it doesn't matter to us. Yeah. Right. The answer is a couple things. One, justice, right? Mm-hmm. Two is the more attention you could bring to how stupid these standards and your ground laws are. Mm-hmm. They just it's a justification for murder. I'm sure cops yes, were telling is. you that we don't want murderers to get away, the, right. the right. prosecute. So tell me about the second trial. The second trial is there's two points that I told the uh, prosecutor, Angela Corey, we must beat this over the head. You have to let the, the jury know this. They're lay people like me and Lucy. You have to show them that 10 seconds of premeditation is premeditation. When he thought about it, Jordan said something to him. He reached in his glove compartment. That's premeditation. He had it holstered. He pulled the holster out. Yeah. He pulled the gun out. He pulled the slide back. That's premeditation. Take those 10 seconds. All those. Right. Yeah. Blow them, Blow them up. Right. That's Make them, you know, expand exactly. them so that exactly. the jury can That's sit right. with that and define yeah. it as premeditation. Exactly. Right. And the second thing is you have to define what's imaginary doubt and reasonable doubt. Yes. Reasonable. Right. If 100 people are in the same situation as Michael done, would they act the same way? That's reasonable. You know, and and no, when you think about it, no. So whether he had it in his head that the boys had a gun, that's is not what matters. Would a reasonable person do the same thing? And you have to point that out to the jury. And there is also some evidence that came into play, too, that they didn't really hone in on in the first trial. First and foremost, Jordan had this funny little cap on his head, mm-hmm. this knit cap on his head. Mm-hmm. And so there again, Michael Dunn never saw the knit cap. He expressed, you know, when the attorney said, have you ever seen this cap before? He's never, never seen it before in my life. Well, if, in fact, Jordan is getting out of the car to shoot you. Yeah. You, that's the first thing you would have to see on his head. And not only that, too, there were no indentations on his door showing that Jordan had tried to open his door. No indentations on his car, Michael Dunn's car to show that a door indeed had been opened. It was all fabricated. So these were the things that we kept saying, mm-hmm. challenge this, challenge, challenge this, that, yeah. challenge this. And they did. Do you think with the second trial, all the notes, all the information, all the strategy that you imparted to the prosecution, they, without you saying that, they might have had a totally different strategy, it sounds like. They yeah, have, because yeah. They, they can't see beyond, you know, when you go to work every day, nine to five, and uh, if you work in news media, that's who you talk to every day. Exactly. They, they talk to judges, they talk to lawyers, so they're about the law. They, they barely talk to regular people, yeah. you know, and so they needed from us to say, you know what? Regular people is going to think this way, and you must prove premeditation to us. You have to let us know what that really means. Also, stand your ground's a relatively new law, and so they didn't yes. have years and years of practice of how to explain it to a jury. And Maybe justifiable now they homicide are. Right. also right. is new. So on the issue, there are a few strains of your activism, but on the issue of reforming stand your 
ground no. laws. Mm-hmm. Have you changed any minds? I mean, it's a contentious issue from what I know about Florida. People hear about your story, they're sympathetic, but maybe there are people who would be sympathetic in the first place. Has any state legislator said, I'm going to change my vote on this? The legislator in uh, the state house in Florida, uh, Alan Williams, put a bill in to repeal it. Mm-hmm. But And me and Lucy both spoke at the Florida state house, and they said, well, it's attached to the Castle Doctrine. Which yeah. is you, in your home, you could shoot someone, right? There you right. go. So they, and the McBride case it. in Michigan, that was a big issue because he was yeah. shooting from inside the house to outside. Did the Castle Doctrine apply? Right, right, right. right. And gun laws are popular in Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't take our guns away. And well, I get that. And yeah. I just, for the fourth time, actually testified before you know of a committee hearing on stand your ground in Tallahassee about the the. the in opposition of the expansion of the law. And basically, I was told by the chairman in that committee hearing is that, you know, of course, there were a lot of excuses that were thrown around, but at the end, basically, it was just politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. So you must have thought of this, that what about all these things? What if he wasn't wearing the hat? What if those indentations, like they could or couldn't have been there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Without these circumstances, maybe this guy would have walked on the second trial and it the bar shouldn't be that high to get a right. conviction of a guy who obviously just killed someone in cold blood. Right. So what could be done about that? I always say if Michael Dunn, in that very same circumstance, had shot Jordan three times, they would have backed the car and drove away. If he sat in his car with his gun and dialed 911, he'd be walking free today. So he convicted himself from his actions. Had he just said, you know, I fear for my life, these boys came at when he'll be walking free today. Ron Davis, Lucy McBeth there, the parents of Jordan Davis. The name of the film is Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. It's on HBO. It's on HBO Go whenever you want to access it. It's a very good documentary, and thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. The 19 children and two teachers dead mark the Uvalde, Texas school shooting as tied for the eighth most deadly in U.S. history. An AR-15 or similar semi-automatic long gun was used. This means that of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in the last 30 years, nine have featured an AR-15 or similar weapon. Yesterday's shooter did use an AR-15 style rifle. We once again have seen the 223 caliber AR-15 style firearm being used. Used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. The shooter bought an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. I've made my case for banning the AR-15, at least banning new production, which could have helped in this case. And I know that that case isn't going anywhere politically, but I think it bears repeating with some new information priced in. I also hope the case may fall upon the ears of an AR-15 owner. I know there are some in my audience or just an opponent of banning the weapon, and my arguments might strike them as a more reasonable version of the arguments they hear. But that doesn't really matter because this policy recommendation, A, just simply won't happen, but also B, won't happen because I have convinced AR-15 enthusiasts to become un enthused or because any minds are likely to change. 
For anything to be done, voters need to prioritize it as an issue at the national level. And for many reasons, including history, I do not think that will happen. But if it does, here's what makes the AR-15 and similar weapons so highly correlative to mass casualty events. One, cavitation. Cavitation is the creation of a cavity within the body's organs. The amount of force generated by any round of a weapon fired is determined by barrel length, speed generated, and the size of the round. Compared to other rifles, the AR-15 is in fact not especially deadly, not especially prone to cause organ damage. You might hear gun enthusiasts tell you that the Winchester, the gun that settled the West, would cause a much bigger hole and much more damage if it hit an organ. That's all true. But what the AR-15 rifle is, is a rifle. And rifles, all rifles, are much more likely to kill than handguns. Writing in The Atlantic, Heather Schur, who's a radiologist, treated gunshot victims after Parkland. She also treats gunshot victims normally from handgun shootings. She writes, handgun injuries to the liver are generally survivable unless the bullet hits the main blood supply to the liver. An AR-15 bullet wound to the middle of the liver would cause so much bleeding that the patient would likely never make it to the trauma center to receive our care. You'll typically hear a story where an assailant attacks a group with with a handgun. This isn't the normal gun violence of someone trying to shoot one other person. I'm talking about a would-be mass shooting, but the weapon is a handgun. And typical in those cases, and there are exceptions, one or two people are killed. Those were the people the shooter was aiming to kill or shot at first. And then after that, many people are injured. On the New York subway, 10 people were shot by a handgun. No one died. I have never heard of an AR-15 attack where 10 people were shot with no deaths. The 22 round is not especially big. You'll hear gun enthusiasts, users of the AR-15 say, I wouldn't even use it for big game, but a lot of people do. And because of the barrel length and propulsive force, the deadliness of that round is so much worse than a handgun. Brings me to point number two, magazine size. Rifles are deadly. This is what I've spent some time just trying to tell you. But handguns contain more rounds. The magazines do. A handgun might come with, you know, a Glock. They might sell a 22-round magazine as the standard. The standard magazine for an AR-15 is 30 rounds. Now, some states, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Vermont, Colorado, and some counties in Illinois, ban the sale of more than 10 rounds in a magazine. But because of the ease of loading those rounds, those bullets, into the chamber again and again and again and again, shooters are able to cause more damage than they would with another type of rifle. Now, it is true that magazines, you know, multiple rounds that could load at once are available for all types of rifles, bolt, lever, brake, that's true but they hold many fewer rounds than the typical AR-15 or even the modified as mandated by law AR-15 rounds that are sold in the states that I've already said. Number three, attraction. The first two reasons that I gave you blame the tool for the terror it inflicts because of things like exit velocity and the number of rounds, empirical reasons. The third 
biggest reason to ban these weapons is how the weapon plays into the fantasy of shooters. The word that I've used in the past is totemic. When you're talking about acts that have some element of derangement involved, fantasies around a specific type of weapon take hold. The era 15 represents to the next mass murderer, all those past mass murderers. Several shooters post Columbine specifically talked about drawing inspiration from those two killers. We see the cut and paste manifesto from earlier screeds being put out there by current shooters. The type of gun is exciting to these shooters. Many other arguments rest on the idea that if you take away the type of weapon, they'll still be able to create the carnage, they'll still pick up another type of gun and shoot people. Yes, just not at this scale and doing damage to this degree. This, the attraction argument, rests on the theory that robbing would-be shooters of this key prop in the performance they're about to engage in can lessen the overall desire to commit the act. I firmly believe that to be the case. Four, the fourth reason to ban the AR-15 is because of the huge societal disruption mass murders and mass shootings have. Mass murders lodge themselves in our consciousness and they disturb us disproportionately. I'm saying all this as an answer to the question or the valid critique that you might hear that a ban on AR-15s, even if the ban were to work, wouldn't really lower the overall murder rate. It would budget maybe by three or four percent. The thing is, I don't see our national mood and the national conversation being hijacked and plunged into despair at Chicago's 22 gun murders so far in May, the six people who were shot to death in Philadelphia on Saturday. That didn't really resonate outside of Philadelphia. It was the 10 people in Buffalo and the 21 in Texas. This is a glaring example of a problem that we refuse to fix. It strikes so many Americans not as a policy problem, but as a moral failing. It shakes our foundations. Good people would not allow this to continue. We think about ourselves, so we think of our fellow countrymen as not good people. And what is public policy meant to do except to address these kind of concerns? We're very concerned with this specific type of shooting, and therefore, we should do something about it. And we once did. An historic ban between 1994 and 2004 had a measurable effect on mass shootings, and that ban, the effectiveness thereof, gives lie to the common refrain that would-be shooters will find a way no matter what. Yeah, they'll find a way to shoot and kill, but not so many and not so often. The AR-15 has proven over many, many years and many, many slaughters to have been attractive, plentiful, and deadly. It is a uniquely proficient killing machine. By allowing them to circulate and to indeed proliferate, we don't just consign some of our fellow citizens to be slaughtered. We also consign ourselves to the status of people who refuse to do anything about it. And that's it for this, The Saturday Show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's its senior producer. And Michelle Pesca does so much here at Peachfish Productions. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.